is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. world what a life what a day saturday september 19 2020 rosh hashanah happy new year everybody not so happy though ruth bader ginsburg passed away and it's a darn shame may her memory be for a blessing and it's going to be for a controversy because donald trump is going to try to fill that seat with the aid of mitch mcconnell Let's see what Cory Gardner does. I don't think Colorado wants a chief justice in the mold of Scalia to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So this could be the death knell of the Cory Gardner race, although I think he was done for just for backing Donald Trump. What will Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski do? I don't know, but it's going to be a tumultuous time. We have a spectacular show set up for you on Rosh Hashanah. You know, normally, I don't do shows on Rosh Hashanah. My father instilled in me a respect for my heritage and my people. And thank goodness I can record this before the holy day. It was bad enough that I did a show on Saturday, Shabbat. But at my show, you can go on Friday night for Sabbath. This is a special Sabbath, though. Rosh Hashanah 5781, and I have a heck of a show for you, including some Jewish people like Scott Levin, my old pal who is the head of the ADL around here, the Anti-Defamation League at the forefront of exposing Jew haters, racists, bigots. They are busy in the age of Donald Trump, as is Alan Lichtman. You've been seeing him for decades on television. His prognostications of who's going to win the presidency are spot on. He's a great guest, Alan Lichtman from American University. He predicts who's going to win in 2020 presidential politics. I'm also interested in who's going to win the Western Conference Championship in the NBA. I hope it's my Denver Nuggets. I've been following them since they were the Rockets. Chris Marlowe, the voice of the Denver Nuggets, joins me later in the show. My troubadour has a special Rosh Hashanah song called Good to Believe. It fits in so perfectly. Let's get the festivities started. My first guest, Scott Levin, Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What a pleasure to welcome back on Rosh Hashanah. Of course, we're pre-taping it. Scott Levin comes back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Scott Lashana Tova. And Lashana Tova to you, Craig. It is great to be with you and great to be able to do this on a Friday afternoon before Rosh Hashanah starts. I know. I hope we don't miss anything. What a week it has been and what a cycle it has been not just the covid but election season 
Scott Levin is the head of, what is it called, Mountain States ADL? What's the title now? That's right. We're the Mountain States region of the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL. The Mountain States region is Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Tell everybody first how you are qualified to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Admit it. You are an Well, attorney. i got to admit it. I admit that I've known Craig Silverman since I was in about ninth grade, so maybe that's what really qualifies me. But other than that, I was a practicing attorney for almost 30 years as a trial attorney in the Denver area. And 10 years ago, I gave that up to become the regional director for Anti-Defamation League. And it has just been an amazing ride. Hard to believe it'll be 10 years at the end of November. What are the challenges facing ADL between COVID and anti-Semitism and civil rights issues? Tell us about your last year, 5780. (laughs) This past year has just been extraordinarily challenging. I would say that it's just been increasingly so over the past 10 years, primarily because of the division and, and divisiveness, actually, between people that are out there. A lot of it's on partisan grounds, but much of it goes even beyond just party politics. ADL is a nonpartisan organization, but we're certainly in the fray because Our mission for over 100 years has been the same, and that's to not only fight anti-Semitism, but it's also to secure justice and fair treatment to all. And as you know better than most, Craig, justice and fair treatment have really been at peril over the last several years. I'm very disturbed by developments in Colorado, not just the rise of the alt-right and dangerous types, but Michelle Malkin, who I had on my show about a month ago, it did not end well as I confronted her about the Groypers and Be There and her associations, not just associations, but her linkage with these people who have anti-Jewish sentiments. I know Michelle Malkin. I confronted her about it. She ran away. A couple of weeks later, I saw a big expose by the Anti-Defamation League. I had nothing to do with that. I did not know it was coming. But tell us, Scott Levin, what the ADL thinks about Michelle Malkin. Well, look, uh, we have a center on extremism that is out there monitoring and looking at a lot of different extremist views that are going on in our country right now across the spectrum, from the left to the right on it. And Michelle Malkin is somebody that has come to the attention of ADL, as she did to you, because she's gone from being somebody that was on, you know, the very conservative side of the Republican Party to being somebody that's really starting to normalize white supremacy. And that, we think, is very dangerous. And she has aligned herself with people like the Groypers that you mentioned, the white supremacists that are out there. But, you know, it's one thing, not that we would ever want it or accept it, the anti-immigration rhetoric that she started with, but now she's found herself really at odds with the mainstream or even to the right conservatism. And as she's moved out of that spectrum, she's attracted to these people that are truly, truly white supremacists. At the same time, though, she's linked with top leadership in Colorado Republican circles. And I would say Ken Buck, she was the star at Bandamere, which became a rallying point for people on the right. How does the ADL feel when Michelle Malkin is 
elevated and celebrated in that way? Well, look, again, we're not a partisan organization, but it is really disconcerting to know that leaders of the party have not really done their homework to find out what she stands for, who she's been associating with, and, you know, the things that she's now publishing and saying. So it is quite troublesome. Scott, I've published on her, and maybe they don't care. They think, okay, V-Dare, Groypers, they're fine with us. And the ADL, they're a left-wing organization. If they hate us, we'll, we'll wear it as a badge of honor. Well, I think that that's true. I mean, look, the, the reality is, is that we have to keep calling people like Michelle Malkin out. It's totally unacceptable. And as long as she is accepted by people that are leaders in whatever party that it is, we're going to still call it out for what it is. She has aligned herself with absolute white supremacists. And she did it in the wake of Charlottesville. If you don't know who the Groypers are, understand that their leadership, Nick Fuentes, he was active at Charlottesville, as were the people through V-Dare. Charlottesville was a defining moment for a lot of people, including me. I woke up that day, but some people loved Donald Trump for saying there were very fine people on both sides of that issue. Well, we need to make it really clear. What started out, it was announced to be an assemblage of people to stand up for Confederate statues, not something that I think either you or I would want to do, clearly was much more than that, as it was really the greatest assemblage of differing white supremacy organizations that came together. And, you know, seeing that march that took place the night before the main event, when they had their tiki torches going across the University of Virginia campus chanting, Jews shall not replace us in blood and soil. It made it very clear that there were not fine people on both sides. And Donald Trump could not find it in him to say the right thing. He tried to. He took a mulligan, but he kept screwing it up. And it's become increasingly clear to me he likes to get the support of those people. And maybe you can't weigh in, Scott. It's election season. But boy, the longtime head of national ADL, Abe Foxman, who I'd love to get on my show in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge someday. He's a lawyer. Tell everybody the Abe Foxman story before I tell them why he wrote that Donald Trump is calamitous for the Jewish people. I agree. But what are yeah. his bona fides? You know Abe Foxman. I don't. I know him well. Abe was at the Anti-Defamation League for 50 years, 28 of those years as the national director. He is a lawyer. Uh, I don't think he ever practiced. I think his first job getting out of law school was at ADL. But Abe was a Holocaust survivor himself. As a child, he was what they called a hidden child. His parents placed him with a nanny who kept him while they were on the run during the Holocaust. And thankfully, he was able to reunite with his parents following the Holocaust. But, you know, an extraordinary fighter on behalf of the Jewish people and on behalf of civil rights for all. But he spent his 50 years at ADL, I would say, vociferously being nonpartisan, because I tried to engage him several times in some partisan discussions. And even internally, he wouldn't do it. So it was really quite something when he published this piece that appeared in the Times of Israel, which came out really citing some problems that he had with the president of the United States. And look, for us, even these are 
non we're a nonpartisan organization, but our policies, our principles are going to still have us call things out when they happen that are bad. And look, whenever anti-Semitism, racism, or any of the other isms take place, the number one thing that we can do is to call on elected officials, whether it's the mayor, the governor, the president of the United States, that they need to unequivocally call out hate. And that has not always happened with this current president. Yeah, not even close. He traffics in it. And it's scary times because I've learned, and I'm pretty old, but I'm still learning things, that conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism go together like peanut butter and honey. I mean, one feeds the other. It used to be I thought, oh, you know, people like to engage in conspiracy theories. There's no real harm in it. But anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. And you think, well, how the hell did people fall for the protocols of the elders of Zion where there's some secret Jewish plot to kidnap non-Jewish children and use their blood to make matzah on Passover? It's so preposterous that it's unbelievable that anybody would buy into it. Yet right now, as we sit here, there's a group called QAnon that traffics in similar type conspiracy theories. And we've got a president who loves conspiracy theories, and he loves people who love him. And according to the conspiracy theory of QAnon, Donald Trump is the hero who has to vanquish the globalists who like to kidnap children for sex trafficking. Always with the children. I mean, am I onto something here, Scott? It's the same thing. Well, I do think that that's true. I mean, the, the QAnon conspiracies, while not everybody that is going to every rally that is uh, holding up a sign for QAnon probably believes everything about it, but at its heart, no question is that there's this belief that there's this pedophiliac global elite that's the deep state or the cabal. And, you know, they're calling out everybody from the Catholic Church to Oprah Winfrey saying that they're involved with this, but, you know, they reserve a special place, of course, for the Clintons, who they contend are, are, are leadership of this. But it is so outrageous. And you are right about one thing. Conspiracies have historically never been good for the Jewish people. And here, this conspiracy about the children does tie into some of those conspiracies that have been around for hundreds of years about uh, Jews and the blood libels that took place. Uh, again, it's not always uh, a direct throughput from everything that QAnon says, but as conspiracies, it is not good for anybody. So how far can the ADL go to condemning Donald Trump and his administration? How far will you go? What we will do is, is we will call on Donald Trump, as we would all elected officials, to absolutely condemn QAnon. We don't think that it's okay for the president of the United States to stand up and say that there are, you know, some good people in QAnon because they like the president and to ignore then what is really at the heart of their ideology. And I think that's that's what happened just recently, as you know, when he was questioned about QAnon and, and Jonathan Greenblatt, our national director, tweeted on how inappropriate that was. Speaking of recent incredible statements by Trump, he spoke at the National Archives late this week. Stephen Miller probably prepared this screed 
and he talked about how children are going to be taught his history. And my God, he condemns the 1619 movement. I've never seen anything quite like it. I'm reading Michael Cohen's book, and he flat out calls Donald Trump a racist. Horrible things he said about black people, and he really loathed Barack Hussein Obama. Why? Because he always called them by those three names. And the main reason Michael Cohen says that Donald Trump hated Barack Obama was that he's a black guy. I mean, it's just shocking the level of discrimination. What does the ADL do with all of that? Well, we did come out, and as what you're referring to is, is there was an OMB office, the Management and Budget Directive, that went out to federal government employees saying that they were no longer to at all get involved with organizations that would train them on critical race theory or white privilege, things that probably the president was speaking about that we're not positive about the United States when it came to race relations, and we absolutely condemn that. We think it's absolutely imperative that all people you know, consider the racist past that we've had in the United States, understand the history of this country and where it is that you know we need to go to get better. And so to stop trainings and education that would allow people to be evolving on this journey that has become so apparent to us. If you didn't know about it before, you certainly do in the post-George Floyd area. We need to improve in America. And one of the ways we do it is through these education and training programs. It's very, very disheartening when the president condemned it and OMB came out with this uh, requirement that they stop the trainings. Talk about disheartening in history taught to students. The younger generation does not understand the Holocaust. What happened? Did six million Jews perish? Did countless more millions were also killed? And they also, when they think about it, a significant percentage say the Jews were at fault. My God, Scott, what is going on? I thought the ADL had this fixed. <laughs> well, you know, we've had this mission to stop anti-Semitism, secure justice and fair treatment for 107 years. You'd think we'd get it right by now, but it doesn't work that way. It's a little older than that, too. Yeah, yeah it is. It's but, the world's uh, oldest sport, Jew-hating. I don't understand it. It's repetitive. And thank God for the ADL and Scott Levin fighting it. What are you guys doing? How can you educate people? Because if you don't understand the Holocaust, then how can you even understand what the right moves are in the world? You're absolutely correct. And, you know, amazingly, there's, we did a study. Uh, we have a program called Echoes and Reflection that ADL does with the Shoah Foundation, which is uh, Steven Spielberg started that at USC. And with Yad Vashem, the National Holocaust Museum of Israel, the three, our three organizations came together to form a program called Echoes and Reflections, which trains teachers on Holocaust education. They undertook a recent study, and it really showed that kids, students that, that have Holocaust education not only gain the historical knowledge of the Holocaust, but it understandably makes them more empathetic, tolerant, and engaged, because they understand what happens when human beings and when governments are at their worst. So the really good news in Colorado, Craig, as you probably know, um, the legislature just passed this past session, House Bill 1336, the 
Holocaust and Genocide Studies and Public Schools Bill, and that's going to require certain standards and guidelines for the teaching of Holocaust and genocide education in Colorado. So I think we're we're moving in the right direction in this state. And the federally, there's the No Hate Act um, that's under consideration. Unfortunately, it's been sitting in Congress for too long, but it's really the Never Never Again Education Act, House Resolution 943, to try and instill across the country Holocaust education and genocide education because they are so important. I was a political science major at Colorado College. What was your undergrad degree? I was political science and broadcast communications. Wow. <laughs> look at cool. you. And you're the broadcaster. Yeah, well, now you're broadcasting right along with me. Look at you, the head of the ADL. But I always learned that fascism is a product of the right. You think about the Nazis, and even though they got that anglicized name of National Socialists, they were far from socialists. They fought the communists. They came from the right part of the spectrum. And that's who the fascist Nazis were. It's not to say that communists can't be bad and evil and anti-Semitic and totalitarian, but it just galls me. And I sense some anti-Semitism when people misrepresent who the Nazis were. Yeah. And look, I even oppose when we call the people in the United States, the, these white supremacists, neo-Nazis, they are Nazis. They're just Nazis in their beliefs. They're they're authoritarian, fascist, exclusive. They have race theories. They believe they're better than anybody else. They are Nazis. So anybody who is part of this white supremacy movement is a Nazi. That's the way you look at it. There are ones that identify themselves as Nazis. Look, the white supremacists go across the spectrum right now, but they share a lot of things in common. You know, actually, one of the most amazing things we were talking just a few minutes ago about Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally, which I like to call Unite the White rally. But in any event, it was all kinds of dispersed white supremacist groups that came together there that usually do not play well in the sandbox together because each one has their own little ideology. But one of the things that is sort of becoming common with all of them, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, is, is as they say, they've gone from boots to suits. It's not like the old days where they were dressed up in Nazi uniforms or they had tattoos all over their heads, uh, wore their big steel boots. I'm sure there's still people like that out there. But by and large, these are people that are wearing polo shirts and, and dressing up in suits and other things as they've working their way in to try and get to mainstream conservative politics. And running for Congress and running for other yeah. public positions. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's we, we've seen more and more people like that. At the beginning of the year, I think if my memory serves me correct, there were at least 20 people running for Congress. Uh, many of them did not make it out of their primaries, uh, but we know of few exceptions, but uh, at least 20 people that ran for Congress that believed in and were adherents and probably spoke about QAnon conspiracies. Yeah, including Lauren Boebert running in Colorado. There's some woman who's destined for Congress out of Georgia who's a QAnon person. You've got Laura Loomer in Florida who happens to be a Jewish person. You talk about unite the white, as you call it, in Charlottesville, but that motivated Michelle Malkin, who is not white. She is Filipino Catholic girl from Philadelphia. 
And then there's Stephen Miller, who yeah. I'm ashamed to admit is a Jewish guy from Santa Monica. So thinking about Unite the White, what do you do with those people who are, and Laura Loomer, a Jewish person, what do you do with Jewish yeah. people who are part of QAnon and white supremacy? I do the same thing with them as I would do with somebody that wasn't Jewish or somebody that uh, was white. And that is, I condemn them, I call them out, and I make sure that people understand who they are and what they stand for. This is not the time for us to stay silent. We need to speak out against people wherever they come from. And, you know, that's whether they're Republicans, Democrats, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, whoever it is, if they adhere to this kind of ideology, they need to be called out and condemned. Has the ADL weighed in on Stephen Miller? Oh, yeah. We received a lot of grief in the very beginning of this current administration because we were not shy amongst the more normative of the larger Jewish organizations. ADL called out what was happening, especially on the immigration policy of the administration and Stephen Miller being one of the primary authors of it. But these revelations with the Breitbart staffer, the emails that revealed that, my God, this Jewish kid from Santa Monica, he's putting out there Jewish conspiracy theories and white supremacist stories. Yeah. I mean, again, that's, this isn't the first time that someone from a particular religion or race has spoken out against themselves. We've, we've seen that quite a bit. I saw The Plot Against America on HBO. I recommend it so much. It imagines that Charles Lindbergh, who was an American firster, who wanted to stay out of any confrontation with Hitler, it imagines that he ran for the Republican nomination in 1940, beat Roosevelt and formed some agreement with Hitler and what would have happened to America. I thought it was a great six-part series. What did you think, Scott? Oh, I, I, I agree, because it really, I mean, it also tracks so much of what was real history. I mean, remember, we had the German-American boomed in the United States, and you know, 20,000 people showed up to Madison Square Gardens to talk about which side we should be supporting and for war. And they had their flags that were sort of stylized Nazi flags and interspersed with American flags and pictures of George Washington. And, you know, they were able to turn out a lot of people in the United States. Uh, it may have been a little bit closer to the fictionalized series than we, than we would like to think. And thank God it didn't go that direction. Right. And God knows what's going to happen in November. But the one thing I know is the Anti-Defamation League will be there. Scott, you're a good friend, and let's reflect on Rosh Hashanah a little bit. We've known each other a long time. I'm a Beth Joseph boy. What about you? I'm a Temple Emmanuel boy myself now. I grew up at the uh, BMH, which combined with Beth Joseph. But I've been at uh, Temple Emmanuel now for about 35, 36 years. BMH kind of subsumed Beth Joseph, and I didn't like it. We were natural rivals. What the heck? So I was a wandering <laughs> Jew after that. but. I have my own new synagogue, but this Rosh Hashanah is unlike any other. Let's just hearken back to when we were growing up. I have such fond memories. My grandmother's coming over. My mother was a great cook. It was just a time to eat. That's one thing Jewish <laughs> people know how to do. 
after services, you come home. What time did you eat? Right after services? Well, we you know first there was time because the parents had to finish. Mother and grandmother had to finish doing the, the cooking, so there was always time to start at least some of the football games. Right. You know uh, that were going on. Come back eat as fast as you could, then get back to football. That was that's what I remember as as a kid. But it is important, Craig, that we remind people that Rosh Hashanah and Kippur are not just holidays, but they're holy days. When we were taking off from school, as you and I both did, two days on Rosh Hashanah, I'm sure, and and a day on Yom Kippur, we weren't getting to go uh, play a lot of football then. We were we were sitting in interminable, long, long services. Right. At BMH and BJ, they were similar. They went from morning until early afternoon and on Yom Kippur, oh my gosh. But my father always said, because I would complain, I'm not going to play sports. I don't get to go to school. Come on, dad. And he said, if you can't miss two days or three days, sometimes you have to do it, two on Rosh Hashanah, one on Yom Kippur, then what kind of a job do you have? Or what kind of an education do you, if you can't get by and you are making it easier for your fellow Jews who are observant, we're Jewish people. It's just a couple of days that set us apart. And it's a chance for us to identify as a Jew. I remember at the start of this year, Scott Levin, that you at Temple Emmanuel kid, and for those of you out there keeping score, that's more reformed. You put on a yarmulke. Just, well, you tell people the reason you did, did it, and are yeah. you still doing it? I've been at home, so I, I don't do it as consistently. But I made the decision in the past year that if there was anti-Semitism that was out there, one of the best ways to counter it was to really show people how proud you were in your identity. And one of the easiest ways for a Jew in America to do that today is to keep their head covered with a yarmulke. And I, not that I think people, when they see me question whether I'm Jewish or not, I'm, I've, I probably have a little bit of the classical look to it, but it was really just a, an almost a badge of honor for me. I think, to be able to wear the yarmulke. People wear yarmulkes, and I don't want to put that down at all for religious purposes because there are commandments about head covering. And I I personally wear a yarmulke when I go into the sanctuary at Temple Emmanuel or to any synagogue that's there. But I do not and culturally wear yarmulkes in public normally. And I just made the decision to make that change so that people would see me as a proud Jew walking in and amongst them. I think that's really cool. And another proud Jew out there is Jared Polis. And I remember at a candidate forum, this was when he was a congressman. It was at BMH on Monaco, right across from George Washington High School. And I was sitting there and I watched him come in and watched him reach into the yarmulke pile and put one on his head, just like any Jew of our age would do. And I thought, Gosh, he was raised like Scott, like me, and now he's the first Jewish governor of Colorado. And maybe yeah. I'm a little too sensitive to it, but hell, you're the head of the ADL around here. I think some of the criticism thrown his way is Jew-hating. I just do. Do you? Yeah, I think that some of it is. It's something that we do keep an eye on. I was very proud of Governor Post because right after he was elected, and it was one of the first interviews I heard of him, and somebody was saying, oh, it's so wonderful. You're our first you know, gay governor they had. And, and he corrected the reporter and said, and Jewish, because he's, he's also a proud Jew. So it's nice to see somebody 
in leadership that way. But look, when you put yourself out there in the public and you identify and where a section of the people believe you are the quote unquote other, then there is some exposure and some risk to that. And, you know, that's just the way that it is. You and I have known that since we were on the playground in elementary school when the first person called you a dirty Jew. So, well, I was a little bigger than you, so I'm not sure they called <laughs> me that as much. But yeah, no, I, I've, I've felt more anti Semitism in the last couple of years. Maybe it was where I worked on the radio. Right. It's just bothersome, but it's good to know the ADL is out there. And speaking of yarmulkes, I think I learned it, Beth Joseph, but you are more knowledgeable. You went to BMH. Isn't wearing a yarmulke just a, a sign of respect that there's something between you and God showing, you know, that God is bigger than you? That sounds like a great theory to me. I'll go with that one. <laughs> well, let's talk about faith. You know, it's interesting because my troubadour, Dave Gunders, has a beautiful song called Good to Believe. And the reality that you and I realize about being part of the Jewish people, and we take pride in that, and it's us. I think it's a gift. I tell my kids, you know, being Jewish and Judaism is a gift. You can open it any time, but take it as a gift. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, I look at it also, you know, the Jews in the Old Testament are the chosen people. That didn't mean we were, you know, chosen necessarily making us special. It gives us a greater responsibility. And that's the way that I've looked at it too. You know, I, you know, we have, so many of the important lessons that there are from the Old Testament and from the scholars, one's about that everybody is created in God's image, you know, makes it very easy then for me to be able to support people that don't look like me, that people that don't even pray like me, but they're still created in God's image. And, you know, that's a really Jewish concept that we have. And the fact that, as we say in the Old Testament, it says something like 36, 37 times you know, that we need to honor the stranger more times than it tells us that we shouldn't kill, uh, more times than it tells us definitely that we should wear a yarmulke. So for me, being able to stand up, you know, when kids are thrown into cages for no other reason than they were refugees or immigrants to this country, I have no problem in speaking out against it because all of that comes from my faith and, and my religion. And your people. And the fact that the Jewish people have survived as long as we have is a miracle. And the other reality is that without Judaism, the Jewish people fall apart. Am I right? I think that's probably right. It's, you know, so many people think of it as just a culture, but it, they, you still have to have the religion as part of it. You can eat all the bagels and watch all the Jerry Seinfeld that you want, but, you know. Being Jewish is, is more than that. And it's pretty darn cool because what we do this time of year is we reflect on the year that was and we make our intentions for moving ahead. And I would just like to say that sometimes through the years, I've had my quibbles and quarrels with the ADL. I thought maybe they celebrated people too far on the left, this or that. And right now, I think we're in an existential struggle. And for me, I can say it. It's Donald Trump. And boy, do I admire Abe Boxman for saying it, too. America's under threat from Donald Trump. And on the good side, on the right side, on the non-racist side is the Anti-Defamation League and guys like Scott. So, Scott, I can't thank you enough, and I wish you a Happy New Year. Thank you, my friend. Happy New Year to you. 
Scott Levin, Craig's Lawyers Lounge. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Happy New Year, Troubadour. Happy New Year to you, Craig. Rosh Hashanah. As Jews, we get the benefit of two New Years and some resolutions. Do you have any? I hadn't thought about that. I'm not prepared. That's okay. How do you celebrate Rosh Hashanah? It's usually a day with family. We have a little, some apple and honey to remind us of the sweetness of the new year. I talk to my father. Normally, I go to temple. Right. This year is different. There are some drive-in services and whatnot, but it's a seasonal change. You can feel it in the weather. Some might call it football season. Or if you're an idiot president, you just say, hey, it's getting colder. Right. Except for those forest fires there. Anyway, back to Rosh Hashanah. It's a happy time. It's festive. And you know whose birthday it is? Um, no. The Earth. Okay, yes, it's the it's birthday of the, it's a renewal the of the began, earth. And it's a renewal of the earth. Yes. And let's celebrate it. And you have the perfect song. God, I love it. Tell everybody about the song, Good to Believe. Good to Believe came to me when my younger daughter, Rachel, after hearing about a school shooting, said to me that she didn't, not that she didn't believe in God, but she doubted God's existence. I asked her a little more about that. I didn't argue with her. Essentially, she didn't believe that God would allow these things to happen that happen. So how did you respond, great father that you are, Dave Gunders, my troubadour? I told her it was her belief. It was not up to me to tell her what to believe. But I started thinking about it. And then you started to proselytize. Well, no. Or proselytize, however you say that word. You started to do it. You were proselytizing to your daughter with this song. In my own way, I I didn't tell her what she needed to believe, but just that for me, it's good to believe in a higher being and some, something more than ourselves. 
Right, because you say believing in nothing, then nothing is all you are holding on to. That's right. And also my personal belief is that it feels better to be able to say to say thank you, like you and I do oftentimes, Craig, when we're going for a walk, we see something beautiful, the moon rising, a buck running across the road, whatever. And I know a lot of times you'll stop and look up at the heavens and say, thank you for that. Right. But you have beautiful lyrics. And like, I'm a believer, kind of like your daughter. And that's why I love Judaism. It's a simple concept, believing in God. Now, it's much more complicated than that, but you're a Jew too. Isn't that what you love about Judaism? You just believe in God. I do, and everybody can believe in their own. What, what, that, what that means, I think, is unique to everyone. So Judaism leaves a lot of latitude for our beliefs. And to wrestle, as your daughter was. I was a teenager, and we lived next to the rabbi's home for BMH. And every few years, we would see a new rabbi come by. Some stayed longer than others. But there was a rabbi, Steinhorn, who was an interesting dude from South Africa. And one day when I was probably about Rachel's age, I said, I don't think I believe in God. I said it to him. And he said, I'm not sure I do either. (laughs) And I thought, whoa, you're a rabbi. Anyway, is it a crutch, something to hold on to? Could it be validation for critics of religion that you just need something to hold on to? Why not just walk on your own? Well, in this case, it's not the belief in God isn't fear-based. It's more gratitude-based. So to me, a life is enriched when, when one can say thank you. Right, and it humbles you. It's something bigger than you. Let's listen to your wonderful song and then come back and talk about the music and the message and to maybe dip some apple in honey. Here it is, Good to Believe by Dave Gunders. Ain't nobody out there even cares No kind soul to do your reckoning Or answer your prayers Only the echo of indifference What can you do? Something real pulling me I miss you so much 
We stand on the shore of this living sea, casting our nets. Love's at the core of this mystery. We just can't see it quite yet. That's wonderful. And it starts with a hard guitar lick. What did you come up with first, the music? Or was it when your daughter asked you the question? You probably had the lyric before the music. No, I almost never have the lyric before the music. It's always a melody that comes to me. And in this case, it was the song. It was the, it was the chords of the guitar and the melody. And it was just at this time when Rachel had uttered those words that I thought, what a you know, what a nice melody to present the idea of being humble to a presence bigger than ourselves. And you use the word mystery, and we don't have all the answers. And that's what I love about, you know, being the children of Israel. And I know this Parsha because it was in my son's bar mitzvah when Jacob wrestles with Esau, he hurts his hip, and that spares him from Esau's wrath. And when he wrestles with God who hurt his hip, that was to wrestle with God, which is what Israel is about. We don't have all the answers. And that's what I like about Rosh Hashanah, that we all start searching again. The Book of Life is open on Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur it is sealed. It's so cool to talk to you about such things and for you to always have the perfect song, Dave Gunders. Honored to be with you on this new year. Thank you, my friend. Lashana Tova. Lashana Tova. Have a sweet new year. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because, you know, bad things might happen. You know, if, if you have a, a son or a daughter who you know, absolutely, you know, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have or, you know, are we going to, what treatment option are we going to have for mom and paralyzed by, oh no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do, do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. 
Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Gosh, I get some great guests like Alan Lichtman, who's coming up, world-class historian. You've watched him on television before. He might not be as famous as Meacham or Beschloss, but he's more outspoken. I love that. I also assumed that he was, you know, pretty well-versed in Judaism and being Jewish, but you never know. As you find out, as I interview Alan Lichtman. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, September 19, 2020. Rosh Hashanah. We are pre-taping an interview with one of the best historians in all of America. His name is Alan Lichtman. Welcome, sir. How are you? Thank you so much. So far, staying healthy, and I hope you are as well. I am. I've done my research on you. Of course, I've watched you for years on television as an esteemed historian. But your son has a podcast now. Tell us about that. Yes, my son has an amazing podcast. In fact, if you like, I will have him tell you. That would be even okay, better. Okay, let's do that. We'll make the connection. Hi, Craig. How are you? Hi, Lashana Tova. Tell us your first name. Sam. I have a Sam. He's at high school right now. Tell us about your podcast, Sam. Sure. I've got a podcast called World Frequency Radio. And the overall kind of tagline of it is in-depth conversations with people from you know, around the globe as they tell their stories about the culture, events, and experiences that's shaping their world. So my first three episodes have been very country and politically based. So my first one was on Belarus and the situation happening there. My second one was on Hong Kong and the pro-democracy movement there. And my latest one is on Montenegro in their 2020 election that switched power for the first time in three years. How timely, how powerful. Are you a history buff like your father? Yeah, I'm like a story, history type, geopolitical type buff. Well, let me let me get you back on at some point. Would you agree that doing a podcast is dependent on great guests? And would you agree that your father is a great podcast guest? Yes. Professor Lichtman, American University. How many books have you written now? Depending on how you count, 11 or 12 books. And I'm not counting the seven editions of my book, Predicting the Next President, the latest edition, of course, is the 2020 edition. So counting that as one, I think I have about 11 books. In academia, is it true, publish or perish? And if that's the rule, then you should be prospering. Do you have tenure at American? I assume so. I have had tenure since 1980. I have been a distinguished professor, which is the highest academic rank for only a very few of us out of 
many hundreds of faculty at American University. That allows you to be outspoken. That's why I look forward to it when I see you on television, as opposed to maybe a little more staid historian. Right. I, I can say anything I want. I don't slander anyone. But short of that, I can air my own opinions. Right. Like your book, Repeal the Second Amendment. Someday we need to talk about that. The case for impeachment, FDR and the Jews. But you know why you're on right now. America is under threat like I've never seen before. But you are the history professor. Am I right? That's correct. You are right. What is the danger? On the eve of Rosh Hashanah, spell it out. What is the danger as you see it right now in America? I see multiple dangers. First of all, you know, I have children and I am greatly worried about the future of my children. I am greatly worried about the devastating effects of climate change, whether they even will have much of a future and whether my grandchildren will have any future at all. Climate change is not a projection. It's not a theory. It's here. It's now. The West Coast is burning up in an unprecedented way. We have record storms fed by warm waters in the Atlantic. We have derechos. We have tornadoes. We have killer droughts. We have melting glaciers. And my God, we have a president who thinks he knows better than the scientists. That chills me to the bone. The other thing that has me incredibly worried is the future of our democracy. We obviously have a president and an attorney general who care nothing about democracy. Donald Trump would only wish that he could be like Xi of China or Putin of Russia. He's even said, uh, to hell with the Constitution, I think I should have a third term. That absolutely chills me to the bone. The other thing that chills me to the bone is the polarization that our country is experiencing. People at each other's throats rather than coming together to solve the enormous problems. And of course, I am worried about uh, racial injustice and the enormous and growing gap between the rich and everybody else in America. Income and wealth inequality today is equal or greater than it was on the eve of the Great Depression of 1929. All the gains of previous years have been wiped out. I don't want to be, you know, a Cassandra. You know, I still have faith in the American people. You know, we endured the Civil War. We endured the Great Depression. We endured World War II. And my hope is we can endure this as well. But it's a daunting challenge. I was thinking that this feels like a combination of the Civil War and World War II, and we're not the only ones reaching for descriptions. Jim Mattis, our Secretary of Defense, he was in the Atlantic, his own words, saying that this guy is deliberately divisive, Donald Trump. And the paragraph above it, I'm sure you noted it, Professor Lichtman, referenced the Nazis and how their credo was divide and conquer. What did you make of that? Wasn't that one of the most powerful warnings ever, and yet a lot of America ignored it? Yeah, uh, and James Mattis is someone who's seen it all from the inside. He's not just an outside observer. He's not a bleeding heart liberal. He's a hard-nosed conservative general. And, of course, my good friend uh, Bob Woodward's book was absolutely chilling. And we even 
amazingly have Trump lying about his lies. He lied to the American people about COVID. I'm fascinated that you know Bob Woodward. I think his book is amazing, but even more so the tapes that he acquired. As a historian, this is the holy grail, right? I mean, what could be better than listening to Trump in his own words? And the thing that bothers me, Professor Lichtman, is he treated Bob Woodward, your friend, with dignity and respect that he just doesn't show for the American people. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I wrote a book. It came out well over three years ago called "The Case for Impeachment," and of course, my prediction of Trump's impeachment did come to pass. And I looked at his entire career, starting from the early '70s when he was sued by the U.S. Department of Justice for discriminating against minorities in his real estate company, and hired Joe McCarthy's aide Roy Cohen to obstruct and challenge suit. So I followed his career for over 40 years. And you've heard this before. I'm not the only one to say this. The only thing, not the most important thing, to quote Vince Lombardi, but the only thing that Donald Trump cares about is Donald Trump. Nothing else matters whatever to him. And he, by the way, you know, everyone gets the William Barr Donald Trump relationship completely wrong. It is not that Donald Trump is manipulating William Barr to do his bidding. Quite the opposite. William Barr is using Donald Trump to advance his unabashed vision of a Christian theocracy in the country. He hasn't hidden this. He doesn't believe in democracy. He doesn't believe in equal rights. He believes, you know, we should have a dictator guided by what William Barr thinks of the dictates of God. And he's using Trump at every point to advance that agenda. Can you imagine comparing lockdowns designed to save people's lives with slavery? And he did it at Hillsdale College. That's got to rankle you being a professor at American University. And you know all these people. William Barr Did you know him around town? Did you perceive him as this kind of threat? He used the flattery that Trump loves and legal tactics. I'm listening to Michael Cohen's book right now, and it's pretty easy to get in Donald Trump's good graces, give him a way to get away with his corruption, and flatter his ass. He he will love you as a lawyer, right? Absolutely right. And, And Barr is a smart guy. He is a completely diabolical guy. You know, com- evil through and through, but he is a smart guy and he knows how to manipulate Donald Trump to achieve what has always been William Barr's own agenda and autocratic theocracy imposed on the United States. As you say in that speech, he was quite explicit. And there's another speech that he gave to the Federalist Society where he's quite specific about his vision of autocratic presidential power. Right. And I was a state prosecutor for 16 years. And at Hillsdale College this week, he spoke about how the line prosecutors are all political and they're trying to do this and that. When that's bullshit, they're the guys who are like that. They're the ones who are all political. There's such a mix of politics with the rule of law now that it's endangering all of us. It's astounding the way brazenly a bar has manipulated 
his position for political ends. What do you know about his family? Aren't you from New York? And he's from New York. His old man was born a Jew, and then he became the head of that Dalton school, hired Jeffrey Epstein, converted to Catholicism along the way. Do you know about these guys? I'm from Colorado. What do you know? I don't know that much about it, but I do know his previous career when he worked in the H.W. Bush administration as deputy and as attorney general and his autocratic tendencies strongly came out in the memos he wrote in his advice to H.W. Bush to pardon all of the Iran-Contra figures that had been indicted. And his view essentially really hasn't changed that the president could just ride roughshod over the Constitution and the law That's his history, but it's vastly worse now because George Bush had some integrity. Donald Trump has none, and we now have the unleashed William Barr under Donald Trump. Okay, let's give people reason to have hope for a happy new year. And I think I've got just the key, your 13 keys. Alan Lichtman, renowned throughout all of America, probably around the world, for his predictive capacities when it comes to normal presidential elections. We have to say normal, right? Professor Lichtman, tell us about your sterling record and what you are predicting for November 3 or the days that follow. Will do. My system is unique. It's not a big equation like the political scientists. It doesn't rely on polls, horse race polls or punditry. It doesn't look at who's up or down on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't pay attention to the speeches, the debates, the ads, the fundraising, the dirty tricks of the campaign. Rather, the keys to the White House is based upon the insight that American presidential elections, presuming they're full and fair elections and not stolen, are referenda up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. In other words, imagine that it's governing, not campaigning, that counts. And the 13 keys are 13 simple true-false questions that look at the big picture of the incumbent record, things like midterm elections, third parties, long and short-term economy, policy change, social unrest, scandal, foreign policy successes, and failures. And the way it works is if six or more of the keys are false, they're always worded in a way that an answer of true favors the reelection of the party holding the White House. So if there are six or more falses, six strikes, and the incumbent party is a predicted loser. This system has been successful ever since I predicted Ronald Reagan's reelection in April 1982 almost three years ahead of time, and in the midst of the worst recession at that point since the Great Depression. So I've been doing this for nigh on 40 years. Here's where things stand now. At the end of 2019, Trump was looking pretty good, although I hadn't made a final prediction. He was down four keys, take six to count him out. Then we were hit, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the worst pandemic in 100 years and with the cries for social and racial justice. Well, I'm standing here in my study, Craig, and I'm looking at a note written on the Washington Post from September 2016, where I predicted Trump's win. 
and it says, Professor, congrats, good call, and in big Sharpie letters signed, Donald J. Trump. Well, he acknowledged my prediction, but he didn't understand the deeper meaning of the keys that governing, not campaigning, counts. And instead of dealing substantively, as we now know even in greater detail from Bob's book, he reverted to his 2016 playbook and thought he could just talk his way out of it. Didn't work. He has now lost three more keys. The short-term economic key, based on an election year recession, the long-term economic key, which is based on the relentlessly negative growth that's pulled down his long-term average, and of course, social unrest because of what is raging across the land. So just in a matter of a few months, Trump goes from four keys down to seven keys down, one more than is necessary to predict his defeat. Craig, never before in the history of the country has any White House party suffered such a dramatic and sudden reversal of fortune in just a matter of a few months. Never happened before. And Donald Trump can't deflect blame for this. He was the president, not Bob Woodward, not Hillary Clinton, not Barack Obama, not Nancy Pelosi. He has no one to blame but himself. Right. But he does not have the capacity to blame himself. And I don't think he can stand repudiation, which is what I think is coming. Of course, I live in Colorado and I think he's going to get repudiated here. And a lot of Republicans will deservedly suffer in his wake because they back him. They won't stand up to him. But I've studied the man. I've read all the books. Rick Riley's been a guest. Mary Trump's book was pretty darn revealing. I don't think he and his consigliere, Bill Barr, will allow this to go to an election since he knows he's going to get clobbered. Do you worry about that, Professor Lichtman? Craig, two things keep me awake at night. But before I get into that, let me make a couple of other points. You know, I'm 73, been doing this for 40 years, and I still get butterflies in my stomach every four years. You know, to put yourself out the way I do, For such a long period of time, I know it's going to happen, you know, if I'm wrong, although I don't care whether I'm right or wrong. I care more about the future of the country. But let me tell you what the secret is to successful forecasting. It's not knowing history, although you've got no history. Not knowing math, although you've got no math. Not knowing politics, although you've got no politics. It is putting aside your own personal preferences, a really hard thing to do. But my history training, which teaches us to look at the past impartially, has held me in good stead. So going into 2020, I want all your listeners to know I've called four Republicans and five Democrats. That's as even-handed as you can get mathematically. Now, but because the keys are based on history, there are two things that keep me up at night. One, you put your finger on voter suppression. Look, the Republican base is old white guys like me. You can't create more old white guys. Unfortunately, you can't make us live to be 150. But you can try to suppress the vote of the rising Democratic base of young people and minorities. And we've seen Donald Trump, William Barr, and Postmaster General DeJoy doing everything in their power to try to suppress the vote this year. We've never seen anything like that in the history of the country. 
Second thing that keeps me awake at night is Russian intervention. The Russians are back. The FBI director just today, this morning, testified that they're back on behalf of Donald Trump. And we know he's basically admitted it. He did it in 2016. Just read the bipartisan support of the Senate Intelligence Committee. We know he is again going to welcome and exploit to the hilt Russian intervention. Those two things really, really bother me because they would thwart over 20 years of democracy in this country. And ruin your record of good predictions. That's not nice. Less, much less important, believe me. Uh, I understand <laughs> that when you got that Donald J. Trump memento, did it come to you at American University? How did he get it to you? No, it came to my home, actually. I got an email asking for my address from the Trump organization. Trump's wow. a great showman, let's face it, you know. Sure. Absolutely. He's president. And, you know, he could have been a good president if he was a different person. His politics were undefined. He could have captured the vast middle. And he's obviously got some skills in terms of getting people on his side. But it's frightening. And I've watched your friend Bob Woodward. He's not my friend. He's your friend. But I watched him on Morning Joe and all the other shows. And he's shook. He's worried about America. Let me tell you something, Craig. I've known Bob for decades. Bob is one of the least alarmist persons I've ever met. He is absolutely impartial, objective, even keeled. And for him to come out and say something he's never said before, you know, that Trump is the wrong man for the job. I can't tell you how extraordinary that is. It is. If only a Republican leader would do it. I'd like to hear Mitt Romney speak up again. I know he's spoken up in the past, but can you predict any Republican jailbreak? When is enough enough? What is the breaking point? If there's Bill Barr talk this week, combined with Donald Trump saying, I don't think science has the answers. Come on. I, I've, I screamed to Cory Gardner. I write columns about him. I used to be his friend, but these guys who are in bed with Trump, how do you explain it? It is inexplicable in, in, in many ways. These guys know what a danger he is. How can you conceivably deny science on climate change and put not just every American, every person around the world in serious jeopardy? How can you not see what's going on around you? I mean, Trump said, don't believe what you see and hear. Right, that was a warning sign. I can't believe that these Republicans are so callous that they put their own political fortunes above the lives and safety of their constituents. Well, you are the historian. Who does he remind you of? I think 100 years ago on the streets of Berlin when the commies were fighting the Nazis, and I guess this is my interpretation of history, and then you can correct me, that there's always this, the lefties, the commie hordes are coming. They're coming from other countries. They don't look like us. We need a strong man to put them down. And here's the strong man. And let's take him. And that's how the risk on the right grows. Am I onto something? It's all a matter of fear. He appeals to the fears of people who see America changing and cling to this, you know, make America great again to this mythic view 
of, you know, this wonderful American past that's being destroyed by all these immigrants, by these radicals, by these commies. Again, don't believe your lying eyes and ears. But even Joe Biden somehow is transformed into this fire-breathing communist dragon. You know, he's gone from sleepy Joe Biden to, you know, voracious Joe Biden. It's just astounding. And, you know, people, because they're afraid. Fear is an enormous motivator, as you say. You know, and democracy is fragile. You point to what was happening in the 30s. Well, the first golden age of democracy was right after World War One, when we had dozens of democracies sprouting up around the world. In the 1940s, we were down to 12, 12, 12 democracies all over the world. And Freedom House, which keeps track of these, says in the last decade or, or so, 25 democracies around the world are now sliding towards autocracy. So this notion that our democracy is so powerful that it can withstand anything is a dangerous notion. You know, I do have faith that we can withstand it, but I also understand, like other precious things, how fragile democracy can be and how easily it can be lost. That ABC town hall the other night was so instructive. And thank God for those brave citizens. The black guy who stood up and said, make America great again. It's your point exactly. It wasn't that great for black people. And then a woman stood up and talked about COVID with him. And George Stephanopoulos pressed him. I think Rachel Maddow made the case. And I'm frightened as hell that Donald Trump with his Dr. Scott Atlas He's going for herd immunity, what he called herd mentality. Am I right to be worried? Isn't he putting your son, Sam, and my son, Sam, and the two of us at risk? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. You know, this was echoed by the lieutenant governor in Texas. You know, so a bunch of old people die. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, we're all going to die anyway. Why worry about it? I mean, the attitude is so callous and so cruel, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. You know, I'm not, I never compare people to the Nazis and I'm not comparing anyone to the Nazis, but this is a different point. When news of the Holocaust came to the United States, the great Jewish justice, Felix Frankfurter, you know, maybe the most brilliant mind in America said, I can't believe it. It's not that I think these people who were telling me about the Holocaust are lying to me. I just can't believe that human beings would do that to other human beings. And in a sense, you know, the same thing is happening today. It's hard to believe that Donald Trump could be so callous as to sacrifice the lives of Americans for what he thinks is his own personal political advantage. It's really hard to wrap your mind around it. No, it's distressing. And as a father, I feel helpless. My job is to protect my family. Part of what I'm doing our podcast like this, raising my voice in opposition. It's a frightening time. You are a great historian. It's so good of you to spend time with me. You said you have faith, and that's an interesting way to end it as I get ready to celebrate Rosh Hashanah and a new year, a new start. Where does your faith come from? Uh, Is it a belief in America? And let's not forget what Donald Trump, did you hear what he said at the end of his Rosh Hashanah greeting? No. He said, and I'm really good for your country, too, implying that Jews' country is Israel. My country is America. 
I expect yes. your country is America. Of that course. is offensive. And if you haven't heard it before, you just heard it because it's oh, in the I know mix. all about it. I've written it up in my book, White Protestant Nation, The Rise of the American Conservative Movement, how Christian evangelicals, you know, love Israel. But unfortunately, no one gets to the end of that story, which is, as you know, they want Israel to be preserved for the Jews so the final battle and the second coming can arise. And then what happens to all the Jews? They're killed and sent to hell. <laughs> right, and all the Jews are supposed to gather in Israel, which means that you and what about six or seven million people are supposed yep. to move to Israel so they can get on with that Armageddon and the end days and revelations. Yeah, but let me tell you where my faith comes from. A lot of it is from my Jewish heritage, from my parents. And what I cherish so much about the Jewish heritage is faith is important, but so is empathy to others and service to others, that your life does not just revolve around you alone, but that you are part of a community, a family, a local community, a nation, and a world, and that your obligations extend to others. I think that's one of the most important elements that I have always found out of the Jewish faith and Jewish teaching. What a beautiful statement and perfect manifestation of the qualities you talked about is Joe Biden. I know that's part of your 13 kids, and I said that was my last question, but let's give people reason for hope. I don't think Joe's got his fastball anymore, but I'm not sure he ever had a fastball, but he could throw strikes, and he wasn't wild, and he might be just the right guy for this time. Am I right? Am I onto something? No, I think you are onto something. You know, I'm probably more, much more of a fireball than Joe is, but I've followed him. I know him ever so slightly. You know, he's obviously not a Franklin Roosevelt or a John Kennedy or a Barack Obama, but he may be what we need right now, an empathetic figure. He's at his best when talking about empathy and talking about his life experiences, a moderate. Already, some Republicans in Congress have said, you know, we think maybe we can work with Joe Biden. That's, you know, pretty, pretty significant because when Barack Obama came in, what the Republicans in Congress said, we're going to block everything that Barack Obama wants. So they do seem to be a little bit more open to conciliation and compromise. And certainly that's what Joe Biden represents. All right. I appreciate it. Let's pray for that good result. Can't thank you enough. Happy New Year. Bye, Professor. Thank you. Bye bye. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart, 
and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. What a special time of year. No, not just Rosh Hashanah and the days of awe that follow before Yom Kippur, but the culmination of a lot of my favorite sports. I love golf. You've heard that on my podcast, but my favorite sport is basketball. And for the Nuggets to have a chance to go to the NBA Finals, that would really be something. I've gotten to know Chris Marlowe through the years. I respect him enormously. He is the voice of the Denver Nuggets on Altitude Sports. He is in the San Diego State Hall of Fame as a volleyball player. He teamed up with Karaj Karai for one of the greatest American Olympic volleyball wins ever, a gold medalist, and the voice of the Denver Nuggets. Here is Chris Marlowe. Oh, what a day, what a life, what a world, a world in which the Nuggets have the chance to beat the Lakers and go to the first NBA Finals ever. How lucky are we to have Chris Marlowe, the voice of your Denver Nuggets, return to my show. Chris, welcome back. Well, Craig, glad to be on. Tell us what you've been up to. How about these Nuggets? Well, the Nuggets have been playing beautiful basketball. Thought they were down and out in the Utah series, down 3-1, rallied to win that. Thought they were out in the Clippers series, rallied to come back. And the real good news, if you're a Nuggets fan out there, that Denver is playing as good as it can play right now. Now, against the Lakers, they may have to play better than what they did. But at this point in time, they're playing great basketball, and that's that's very encouraging. Yes, we are taping this before they defeat the Lakers on Friday night, or maybe just set them up for the kill by falling behind three to one. I don't know, but do you give the Nuggets a puncher's chance here, Chris Marlowe? Yeah, I think so. As I mentioned, I think the Nuggets are playing great right now, and uh, they pose some matchup problems for the Lakers. Now, the Lakers have some matchup problems for the Nuggets, too, particularly LeBron and Anthony Davis. The Nuggets played them in the bubble in the, you might remember, they had those eight seeding games Mm -hmm. and the Nuggets and the Lakers went right down to the wire. Both teams weren't playing very well. It it was before Gary Harris returned, before Michael Porter Jr. was getting a big role. I I think both teams are different now. Lakers are playing well, the Nuggets are playing well, and it should be a a really fun series to watch. Chris Marlowe, a great athlete himself, an Olympic winner, volleyball. He's the voice of your Denver Nuggets. And I just think that this has been a sensational season and it's hard to predict. That's the beauty of basketball. When it comes to those seeding games, I thought the game against Miami, when the Nuggets played the Heat, that was instructive because I thought the Nuggets played well, but I could see the Heat was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the seeding games, you know, when you lose a game, I think you learn more than when you win a game. You 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 realize what your shortcomings are. 
most of your fans know that the Nuggets came into the bubble shorthanded. They were missing a bunch of guys for a myriad of reasons, injuries. And so it took them a while to kind of get the rhythm and, and, and get going. The addition of Gary Harris six games into the Utah series was a big break. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I told someone last night, I think someone up, up there likes the Denver Nuggets or loves the Denver Nuggets because Gary Harris did not play in those first five games against Utah. And I don't think he was coming back for six or seven. But then because of the world events, be, because of the social justice pause, there was an extra four days tacked onto those seeding games. Oh, yeah. And then Gary Harris was able to play. So who could have figured that out? It, it was just... Uh, I, I don't want to say divine intervention, but it could have been divine intervention. Maybe it and was. then the Nuggets are in the bubble and against the Clippers, they play game seven. Now, normally they would have been on the road in Los Angeles in a very tough atmosphere. Right. But since they're in the bubble, they're playing on a neutral site and they were able to win big. So I like the Nuggets chances and I'm, I'm hoping that someone is watching over them. It could be Elijah McClain. The team has adopted that poor 23-year-old who was killed in police custody in August about a year ago. Let's talk about that, Chris Marlowe, if you want. What do you think of what's going on? The NBA did have those days off. They set the way for all professional sports. How do you feel about the NBA and its role in social justice? Well, they're certainly interested in the social justice aspect. I will say that. And I think the NBA and the Denver Nuggets in particular have done a, a great job of profiling that, of getting the word out. The bubble has been clean. I think they've done a terrific job in terms of how you run it. There have been no uh, documented cases of COVID. And I think the Nuggets have been kind of at the forefront, uh, forefront of this social justice reform. I know Jamal Murray, in that first series, he played with he played like a man possessed mm -hmm. with with a social message that was kind of imbued inside him. He just played like he was you know obviously motivated that's that's not even the word word, but he played great basketball, and it was like his powers were coming from a different place. He's such an interesting story. Tell everybody he grew up in a suburb of Toronto. His father instilled some unbelievable work ethic and meditation. I've never met Jamal Murray. My kid has his jersey on as we're jumping up and down during the Clippers series. I love the guy, but I don't know him. You do, Chris Marlowe. Tell us about him. Well, I don't I don't get to know the players too much. I mean, I talk to them and we talk mostly about basketball, but you're right. He grew up in a very interesting background. His dad was a player. And usually when your father or mother was a player, they inject you with everything that they know, whether you want, want to like it or not. And so Jamal Murray was taught at an early age to, to be a gnarly competitor, never give up, never surrender, shoot 200 free throws in the snow and the freezing cold. And he just has a mentality that he's not going to lose. He's not going to let down. So I think it's been a coming out party for him, particularly in that Utah series. And then you go to the Clippers series and he was okay. He wasn't great until game seven. And that has been his bugaboo performing in game sevens. He had not played well in the three previous uh, game sevens. He'd been okay. 17, 17, 23. But in the game seven against the Clippers, he was spectacular. 40 points. He carried the oh, team. Yeah. He and Nikola Jokic. And I think he's put to rest 
all the, the, the chatter about can he perform in a big game? Is he going to be an all-star? Is he, is he going to be one of the greats? And, and I think he's certainly on the way. Do you remember the last time you and I spoke? It was after a historic Nuggets event that might have predicted what's gone on with their comeback victories now. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when that was. That wasn't after the Magnificent Seven game, was it, in Utah, where they played with just seven guys and, and no. beat the Utah Jazz? It was after that heartbreaking four-overtime loss. But they came back the game after and they won. But I thought your call on the four-overtime game and just the emotion of that it's kind of led them to this moment, don't you think? Absolutely. And, you know, in sports, uh, particularly in basketball, they don't anoint you. You don't you don't just jump over everybody and go from uh, a fringe playoff team to the NBA champion. You have to take steps. And I think that's what the Nuggets are doing. They got in the playoffs. They won a first rounder last year. They could have made it to the Western Conference Finals, but fell just short. This year, they come in, they win that first-round series. I mean, it's a two-point win in Game 7. And then in the Clippers series, they're, they're playing against the team that the the Las Vegas oddsmakers made the favorite to win the NBA championship. And they took them out, winning those last three games, and winning impressively. It wasn't like they were squeaking out wins at the end. They're beating them by 10, they're beating them by 14, beating them by 16. Mm -hmm. So I think you take baby steps, and the Nuggets have taken – well, maybe not a baby step, a giant step to leap over the Clippers. And now against the Lakers, boy, the challenge is there. I've been following the Nuggets my whole life. And I don't think there's ever been a bigger win than that game seven win against the Clippers. Can you think of any? Not since I've been up here. I can tell you I was at game two against the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. I happened to be in L.A. I got tickets at the Fabulous Forum. And we whipped them that night, and it looked mm. great. And then I think Alex English broke his thumb or whatever oh, happened. Right. Exactly. And that was a big moment. But to do this on a national stage, Game 7 against the favorite, as you put it. But I love to follow you on Twitter, Chris Marlowe, because you are so astute. And you retweeted George Carl, former Nugget coach, who knows so much about basketball, as do you. It is a meritocracy, and if you have a good team effort, it beats individual performers every time. Yeah, that's what George always said. You know, they may have the better personnel, but we have the better team. You know, I, I really love what the Nuggets have done building this team. You know, they've got homegrown guys, guys that they drafted, Murray and Jokic, and now Michael Porter Jr. and Gary Harris. And, and they haven't gone out and bought their way into the NBA. You look at the Clippers. Now, what do they do? You know, they've got two guys right. making a fortune. They mortgaged their future. They sent away all their draft picks. They don't have a draft pick until like 2027. And now what do they do? They've got some disharmony. I, I think it would really be great for the NBA if a team like the Denver Nuggets could win the championship and do it under the guidelines of you draft, you trade, you sign, but it's not like you go out with uh, bags and bags of gold and sell your soul. And I think that's kind of what the Lakers and Clippers have done. If we win, and I say we, because I'm a Denver Nugget fan to my court. My father instilled it in me, the Rockets before them. So if we win, is there an asterisk or is it a super special year to win? I hate the idea of an asterisk. I grew up in the era of the, the New York Yankees back in the 60s. 
And they wanted to put an asterisk next to Roger Maris's name if he broke Babe Ruth's record because they played a different number of games. And I just always thought that was bogus. You either have the record or you don't. You beat the team or you don't. I mean, what they've done, what these teams have done going down to Orlando and staying there, what have they been there for 60, 70, 80 days now? Some of them without their families. The contact is limited. And they've been able to concentrate on basketball. Is it different? Yes. Is it challenging? Certainly, yes. But is it is it what we were used to? No. But no, I, I'm not big on asterisks, so don't ever ask me that again. All right. Speaking of team ball, Nikola Jokic, I thought Jeff Van Gundy put it well. He said he'd pay full price season tickets to watch that guy play offense and defense. Actually, he's just an amazing guy to watch, especially for a guy like me who played being a big, slow, white guy, too. Yeah, he's the most interesting, fun player I've ever covered. I covered Carmelo for a number of years, and he was really, really good. Chauncey Billups and Kenyon and Nene and some of the guys, Iverson. But the Nuggets, I don't think they've ever had a player quite like Nikola Jokic. I think when they were handing out nicknames, if they hadn't nicknamed him Joker, which was pretty good, Mike Miller gave him that nickname. And I think it's apropos, but he's the unicorn. And not Chris Stapp's Porzingis. The stuff that he does, and I think the game, game seven against the Clippers was really an eye-opener for the national folks. I mean, people in Colorado, they know how good he is. You know, people in Denver, I mean, we've been, we've been kind of worshiping at the Serbian altar of Nikola Jokic for five years now. But overall, he's underestimated. And, and an interesting note, uh, you mentioned the national media. No one from ESPN, no one from TNT that I know of, with the possible exception of Charles Barkley, predicted that the Nuggets would win game seven. All of them, none of them. And no one predicted they win the series. So when the experts predict that the Lakers are going to whip up on the Nuggets, I would take that with a grain of salt. Here's what I saw during one of the TV broadcasts. Before the game, Nikola Jokic was doing something that I've always told my two boys don't ever do that. You never kick a basketball because it will go out of round. But there was Nikola Jokic using a basketball like a soccer ball, and he passed it back and forth, foot to foot, I'd say 30 or 40 times. The camera cut away before he stopped. I never saw such coordination in anybody, let alone a seven-footer. Well, you know, back in the day, and I'm sure you know this because you're a big fan, he was a chubby little point guard. He was small and he dribbled the ball around, and that's how he got his great ball handling skills in terms of basketball. I know he played a lot of soccer. Everybody in Europe plays soccer like America used to play baseball, but he's fabulously talented, and and some of the time you're you're just surprised at at some of the things that he can do. And I'm particularly pleasantly surprised at, at some of the stuff that he says, which is so refreshing. Mm-hmm. It's not canned. It's not coach speak. You know, he just lets it rip. And he's really very, very funny and entertaining. He was like a little kid last night. And speaking of funny and entertaining, and I know that you can be tough critic of fellow broadcasters, but former Nugget Mark Jackson, yeah, he came through Denver a couple of times, as I recall. He said, yeah, I have a chubby little point guard inside of me, too. And if you know Mark Jackson, I thought that was pretty funny. What about you? Yeah, 
Yeah, he was. He was. Although I don't know. Well, I guess he was a little point guard at one point too. Yeah. I I actually like that crew, Mike Breen, Van Gundy, and Jackson. I know people are down on Jackson. Boy, he gets a, a lot of criticism that I see on Twitter and surrounding places. But I think they work well together. I, I just think Van Gundy is so refreshing when he when he critiques the officials or says, hey, this, they got to change this rule. That was obviously a foul. What are they doing? I just think he he's very refreshing and and has some really good insights. So I thought they did a, a really good job in that game. Here's a guy you know so much better than any of us, Mike Malone, the coach. I thought that he had one of the greatest coaching performances. And let me tell you the highlight moment for me. Nikola Jokic got brutally fouled and it wasn't called. And he has a temper. And he was about to go off when Mike Malone stepped in and took the team for him. Yeah. I thought that was huge. What about you? Yeah, I, you know, sometimes you have to take one for the team. And Jokic got fouled on that play. It was very obvious. And Malone just went ballistic, took the technical. And you have to protect your star players. I think that's one of the things that Malone has done well. I think also his halftime adjustments cannot be underappreciated or ignored. They say that great coaches make great moves at halftime. And the three final games against the Clippers, Nuggets trailing in all three, and they were trailing big in all three. And the Nuggets come back to win. They make some subtle adjustments on defense. Suddenly, the Nuggets have gone from the worst defense in the league. They were the worst defense in the bubble for the eight seeding games. And now they're like middle of the pack and they're holding the Clippers, uh, the vaunted Clippers to 89 points in that final game. So uh, I like what Malone has done. I, I think he had to be kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the Michael Porter era. Generally, I think he's done a pretty good job with that. You know, teaching the kid, you have to have responsibility. You have to be able to uh, play defense. You can't just play offense. Uh, You have to do your thing. But generally, pretty darn good. He's made some adjustments. He switched the starting lineups. Yeah, I give Mike Malone an A for particularly that performance against the L.A. Clippers. Right. And who do you want in there during that game seven? Do you want the kid from Montbello, Paul Millsap? Or do you want MPJ, who has a terrific upside? But Millsap really rewarded Mike Malone. And it wasn't just his play. It's his toughness. When he stood up to Morris on the Clippers, that was a big turning point, too. That was the turning point of the series. If that doesn't happen, Craig, the Nuggets have not moved on. They would not be playing in the Western Conference Finals. Let sleeping dogs lie. And what they did, they energized the Denver Nuggets. I told my partner, Scott Hastings, the other day, you know, when you get in a fight, if you're in the fight, you're energized, right? But all your buddies are energized, too. Everybody runs over. I mean, your temperature, your your boiling point has gone up. And I just think that that guy talking trash to Paul Millsap and saying, you're, you're, you're going to effing go home after this game tonight. I just think that inspired the Denver Nuggets. And, you know, Millsap goes out and gets 14 points in the third quarter. And I really admire what Millsap has done. He hasn't played the greatest. My personal opinion is that I want to have Michael Porter Jr. in the game at the end. He's a great free throw shooter. He spaces the court. He can get you four or five threes if he's on. If not, he can rebound. And I think you want to have when a little basketball speak for you. When you're when you're running Murray and Jokic on that two-man game pick and roll, you have to have dead-eye shooters in the corners to, to make it work. A relief valve. 
when the exactly. And so you've got Porter in one. Yeah, you got Porter in one corner, and you've got Gary Harris in the other corner. Now Millsap's a pretty good standstill shooter, but he's not. I don't think he's quite the caliber there. Although in that final game, he hit two big threes oh, right on the money. Jokic spotted him. That was the key too. What a great comebacks. And you are such a great volleyball player. I'm sure you had some incredible comebacks. Were any of them in the Olympics? What's your favorite comeback story that you were part of? Well, on the beach one time playing two man, my partner and I were down 10, nothing in a game to 11 and we won 12, 10, which was uh, at that time, almost unheard of. In the Olympics in volleyball, you know, we weren't supposed to beat Brazil in the final. They had beaten us in the round robin play pretty convincingly, three nothing. And then when we ended up playing them in the final, we turned it around. I guess that's a comeback. We came we came back and turned it around and beat them three nothing and got the gold medal. They got the silver. But it's hard to remember, you know, comebacks. You know, the Nuggets are are kind of getting a reputation for a comeback team. Earlier in the season, they were down 21 to Philadelphia two minutes into the fourth quarter and ended up winning that game in overtime. I like what they do. They don't quit. They usually don't let go of the rope. They keep punching. You know, that game the other night, you just thought, well, they're going to come back. I had the confidence. Uh, I, I know you probably did, too. Hey, they've done this before. They can do it again. You bring up the word punching, and I'm old enough to remember when the Lakers have broken our hearts at this stage of seasons, and it usually is rough stuff. I remember Danny Shays getting beat up by Kareem and Magic. It was horrible. I like LeBron, but is it going to come down to physicality this next series too? Well, we, we don't have anybody on the Nuggets that is as physical as LeBron James. We, we just don't. And there's very few players in the league that are as physical as LeBron and talented, of course. That's one thing that the Nuggets have to deal with. Uh, I don't think of the Lakers, when I think of them, I don't think of them as a particularly tough team. I actually thought the Clippers, you know, with with Kawhi and Morris and uh, Montrez Harrell and Beverly, I, I thought they were the tougher team. And maybe they were physically, but mentally, no. Lakers would be much tougher out simply because of LeBron. He runs the show. He gets everybody involved. Anthony Davis is certainly a problem. We have trouble covering him because he's so tall and so talented. But the rest of the guys are just okay. And I think this is getting back to your comment about George Carl. They have two stars, but can we outwork them? Can we outdepth them? Can we you know, set the team up so that when LeBron is off the floor, we're making a run. And of course, if Nikola Jokic plays great and Murray, uh, I I think the Nuggets definitely have a chance. Can I just give a tip for my audience? Because you can legally bet in Colorado. I don't know if you can as broadcaster, but I've been betting over 10 and a half and last night or for the Clippers game, the last game over 11 and a half rebounds. I thought he could get that in his sleep when he really tries hard to get every rebound, especially against that squad. Are you guys allowed to wager at all? No, we're not. We're, we're asked to stay out of the betting. I know all the, uh, the betting parlors are kind of coming into vogue. And occasionally when I'm broadcasting, I will mention the line, you know, I think the line with the Clippers was seven or seven and a half the other night. Seven and a half, but it changes. Every stage yeah. of the game you can bet, and the, the individual props change too, Chris. It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day. They said, well, what's what's Jokic over under? I didn't even know you could bet on players over under. And I think Jokic was at 24 and Murray was at 22. So Murray far exceeded his if you had a bet. I had a bet on him to get to 40 points last night at Big Odds. And I had a Jokic for a triple-double because I know what a big game player he is. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I, I was just looking through the stats, the Jokic playoffs. He had five triple doubles in the 14 games last year. The triple double he got last night was the first one in 14 games this season. He's played great, but but sometimes when other guys are in there, like Michael Porter is a really good rebounder, and when he plays a lot, he snares a lot of uh, Jokic's rebounds. But last night, Jokic got every one. That's the most he's ever had, 22 rebounds in a game. He's got hands that are unbelievable, just tremendous in his passing ability. It's just a thrill to watch him. I'm like Van Gundy. When I I went down to San Antonio, I don't know if you remember, we said hi before the game, and the Nuggets stunk it up, but they still made a game of it at the very end because they don't quit. And Jokic and Murray are the heart of it. Mike Malone's coming on as a coach. Let me just suggest this as we ponder whether the Nuggets can win it all. I noticed that the two most activist teams, and I thought it was good, the activism on the part of the NBA, but it fell on Doc Rivers and the Clippers when he gave that speech about, we're afraid as black men. And it really was emotional. And then the Bucks got involved since Kenosha was their market. They're both out now. And during that break, when they decided whether to keep playing, it was widely reported that Kawhi Leonard wanted to go home, and he has gone home now. And LeBron, LeBron wanted to go home. Does that factor in? Am I overthinking this, or will LeBron's warrior spirit just take over? You know, I I think that's a part of it. I I definitely think that's a part of it because it's distracting. And I hate to use that word because you don't associate that with the the social justice movement, you don't want to say it's a distraction, but when players believe so strongly in what they believe and they're trying to play basketball on one hand and fight for a cause on the other hand, I, I just don't think it's it's a hundred percent devotion to basketball. Your focus is split. And I, I agree that, that the Bucks did not look the same. Obviously the Clippers did not look the same. That being said, the Nuggets have been on that social justice path pretty heavily. It's a road traveled well by the Nuggets, particularly by Michael Malone. He's been outspoken and certainly a voice, but the Nuggets seem to have handled it uh, beautifully. That balancing act you have to have going forward. Before I start hating on King James, which will happen during this series because he's going to play rough and I'm going to be partisan for the Nuggets, I have to praise the man. Talk about his social justice warrior. LeBron, to me, is the epitome of a great athlete. He's been in the spotlight since he was a little kid. He's handled it well. I think he's raised his family beautifully. I know he's given back to kids. He has so much responsibility. I think he's handled it well. What about you, Chris Marlowe? Yeah, I think I think he has, too. And It's interesting. If you, if you look back on Game 7 with the Clippers, and how Kawhi played in that game. And he laid an egg, right? I just was listening to a radio program where they say he choked. He did not play well. And he did not score in the fourth quarter. And they were surmising what 
if that had been LeBron James. The media would have just killed him. He gets a lot of praise, yes, and he gets the benefit of calls, yes. But is he an all-time great player? He sure is. He, he's in my top three all-time. I don't know if he's, if he's number one all-time, but you, you have to admire the way he has handled his business both on and off the court. And what happens to the business of the NBA going forward? Are they going to try to have a regular season? What happens next year? Well, uh, next year is going to come very soon, I'm told. They're still debating on when the schedule would start. It won't start any earlier than December. I've heard uh, the middle of December. I've heard uh, Christmas, and I've also heard January. So there's going to be a break in between. My biggest question is not when it's going to start, but how are they going to how, how are they going to work it? Is there going to be or are there going to be two bubbles? maybe one for Eastern Conference teams, say Orlando, and one for Western Conference teams, maybe Las Vegas. Do they split it up that way? And do players, do they have to go into the bubble for six months for a, for another whole season? I mean, they've really got some things that they have to iron out. Now, obviously, a lot depends on what happens with COVID. Is there a vaccine? Can the country get back to normal? And here's hoping it can. But uh, the NBA, I think they're waiting to see where it goes because I know that they want to they want to have they want to have games. They want to have fans. I mean, that's a big part of the owner's bag and how they make money and how they sell concessions and this and that. It sounds mercenary, but. You know, life goes on and business goes on and, you know, owners don't want to lose millions of dollars. That's why they're millionaires and billionaires. Right. And God knows we need the entertainment. The people who say, I'm not going to watch the NBA anymore, even starting with the president of the United States who put the NBA down. When I hear somebody say, I'm through with basketball, I think, my God, talk about, you know, just hurting yourself. That's all you're doing because. It's the best sport in the world. And for you to miss a game like Game 7, Clippers, Nuggets, yeah. how do you react to people like that? You know, I'm a, I'm a little more forgiving than you sound on this. I, I think if you're allowed to speak out for one side, then you're allowed to speak out for the other side. I don't criticize people. If they don't want to watch, they don't have to watch. And if they're not sports fans, they don't have to watch game seven of the Nuggets. Yeah, they were missing it. And if they're not, if they're not in the, the social justice realm, if they don't believe completely in that and, and they want to say so, they want to speak up, I, I'm not going to criticize them for that. I know what I believe and I say what I want to say. And I think people, that's why it's America. You can say what you want to say on either side of any issue and you, you shouldn't be penalized for it. That's my call. I, I agree. And it probably helps that you love basketball. So do I. I'm sure you are a heck of a basketball player, aside and apart from being a, a champion volleyball player. But my last question to you is, can't you say that this is the purest NBA championship? Because to me, it's just like five on five at a great gym. Guys are giving it their all over and over, up and down the court. This is pure basketball, isn't it? Yeah, it's been an amazing run. Uh, once again, I think that the, the NBA has done a spectacular job. I, uh, I actually like watching the games with the virtual fans and the crowd noise piped in and all the stuff they have going on. I, I think that's wonderful. I think they've done the best job of any sport in terms of, of dressing up the arena 
and, and making it more like pure basketball. I, I don't even think the players notice after a while. Once they become immersed in the game, you know, you play on. And I think the Nuggets have done a really good job in adapting to the atmosphere. You mentioned how some of the teams distracted and some of the teams, uh, you know, the players trying to escape out of the bubble. It's been quite the challenge. And I think this might be the best chance for the Denver Nuggets to win a championship that we know of. We think they're going to be better next year. We think they'll be even better the year after as young guys progress. But right now, they're in the Western Conference Finals. They're in the bubble. There's no home court advantage for the Lakers. The Nuggets don't have to go to L.A. to play. They've got all their players back. And they're even talking about Will Barton might be able to rejoin the team. So I think it's all systems go. And if the Nuggets can somehow get by the Lakers, you know, there's a possibility they could be the world champions. I agree. It's exciting. Who would have thought we would have basketball at this time of year? But I like it. I love hoops. I think you are a great announcer, a great student of sport, hoop, volleyball. You do it all, Chris Marlowe. Thanks for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. See you, Chris. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) 
Now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday. And if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Now that is a big show. I hope you liked it. It's a joy to ask famous people to be guests on my podcast, and they agree. And we get to talk about current events, and I hope you love it because I do. Next week, we've got big plans. I can tell you there are major stars that will stun you when they come on my show. In the meantime, for those of you who observe Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, these are the days of awe and introspection. Our country has big problems. I'm reading all the books. Michael Cohen, I'll get Bob Woodward's book. We've got a problem. We have a president out of touch with reality, and he's not a good guy. Thank God, though, as we count our blessings, that Joe Biden seems to have the stamina and his wits about him to succeed in his run for the presidency. Now we have to make sure the rule of law works. Votes get counted because I think Donald Trump is going to be repudiated. And I pray that that happens for the good of America, for the good of my family, for the good of your family. Let us pray in our own way. My podcast is part of my own prayer. You get my raw, honest opinions every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.